beloved brothers and friends all. I would like to bring your attention this morning to a subject which I think is oftentimes not considered as much as it might be. I'm referring, of course, to the subject of Sodom and Gomorrah. Many young people who are entering our schools and colleges in this day and age find that the uh, account of scriptural stories is frequently ridiculed, considered to be myths. The flood, for example, is considered to be a myth by many of the learned today. So also are many of the other features of the scripture account. And one of those things which is often so spoken of is the account of the overthrow of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, archaeologists have done a great deal to help us in overcoming this tendency to ridicule the teaching of the scripture in that wherever archaeology has disclosed anything which tends to show what the period of time was in which the scripture was written, almost without exception, it corroborates the record of the scripture. Unfortunately, archaeology does not corroborate all the scripture because evidence is not there which would lead us to know what the entire situation is in respect to ancient history. But one of the things in which archaeology has done very little to help us on has been this situation involving Sodom and Gomorrah. We'd like to point out some of the reasons in the course of our discussion this morning why archaeology has not been able to tell us more about Sodom and Gomorrah. First of all, I think it might be well, though, for us to consider the story from its beginning and be sure we have the details in mind. You, of course, have heard the reading to us this morning concerning the uh, scripture account of the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. But consider back for a moment and find, let us find out for a moment why was Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, in this area? Also, where was the city located in ancient times? If we'll turn back for a moment to the 13th chapter of Genesis, this will take us more or less to the beginning of the story. Reading from the 8th chapter, the 8th verse of the 13th chapter, we read the following. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between thy herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Now the circumstance involving this was that when Lot, who was the kinsman of Abraham, and Abraham had come out of the area of her of the Chaldees had gone down into the uh, area of uh, Palestine in which they later were to sojourn. It came to pass that uh, they actually entered into the area of Palestine which is as we know it today. They found that the flocks and herds were of such large character that they didn't have enough pasturage for both. And thus the circumstance, the herdsmen of Lot were striving with the herdsmen of Abram in an effort to find grass for their, shop, for their flocks. So it took, came to pass that Abram said, don't let this happen. We're kinsmen. Let's not have argumentation and strife between our herdsmen. And notice the generosity of Abram. He says, is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. For if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes. See, he had the first choice. Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of the Jordan, the river Jordan, 
that it was well watered everywhere before that the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot shows him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from the other. Lot dwelled in the land of Canaan, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. And we should note the 13th verse. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now here is an interesting situation, and we would for a moment contrast it. The cities of the plain were located in the plain of the Jordan, and elsewhere in the scripture, as we read in the chapter today, the plain of the Jordan is also known as the Dead Sea. But we find that in the days of Lot, this was a beautiful territory with lots of grazing space. The place was well watered, grass was plentiful for flocks, and Lot thought this was the most ideal section of the country. But if you went down into the valley of the Dead Sea today, you wouldn't find it so. It's a barren wilderness. The sea of the, uh, the Dead Sea itself, of course, is extremely salt, and it prevents any growth of any type of organisms in the waters of the sea itself, and because of the salty air and the noxious fumes and the extreme heat of the area, almost nothing grows. It's almost a desert ringed with mountains all around. In the mountains nearby, there are sometimes oases in which the uh, water is sufficient so that plants grow. Uh, one of these is uh, in Gedi, which is uh, on the proximity to the Dead Sea area and overlooks the valley of the Dead Sea, but it overlooks a, a barren plain. By contrast, when Lot chose this area, it was a beautiful territory for grazing of flocks. So Lot dwelt there, <coughs> and we know that Lot was more interested in choosing what would further his own economic ends than he was in choosing good associates. Now I think this is very important. It brings a lesson to us today. The place where Lot went was ideal for his flocks and herds. But oh, what neighbors he had. What a sad situation he found himself in. And the scriptures tell us that righteous Lot was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, by which the ancient uh, English rendering means that he was vexed with the evil conduct. Way of life is what conversation used to mean in Elizabethan English. So Lot was vexed and provoked with the evil way of life of the people around him. Still, because he was prosperous there, he chose to dwell there. Things seemed to have gone along for a while, and uh, he seemed to be happy with the situation. And then something happened that the neighbors didn't prove to be too well to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we read in the 14th chapter of Genesis, beginning with the ninth verse, uh, let's read a little verse or two before, starting the first verse, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and 
title king of nations, but these made war with Bera king of Sodom, and with Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab of Adma, and Sheber king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddam, which is the Salt Sea. Again, the definition of the Vale on the valley here being the Salt Sea Valley. Twelve years they served Kedor Leomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Their neighbors made them pay tribute. And finally they decided they'd had enough of this. They were not going to stand it any longer. They were going to refuse to pay tribute. And so, reading in the uh, ninth verse of the fourteenth chapter, that Kedor Leomer and the kings of Elam uh, with title king of nations and Amraphel king of Shinar and Ariok king of Elisar, four kings with five, they came down against these people to enforce the tribute which they had formerly been exact, extracting from them. And then we note this very interesting statement. Please remember this. And the Vale of Siddam, this is the Dead Sea Valley, was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountains. So it was the presence of these slime pits, which we'll talk more about as we go along, which caused the overthrow of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as a result, Kedor Laomer and his cohorts came down and took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, and who dwelled in Sodom and his goods and departed. Now, this is an example of living amongst people that don't have good neighbors. Sometimes you suffer the fate which comes from having bad neighbors, and Lot was in this situation. He merely went down to graze his flocks. And so what happened? He was taken captive by plundering neighbors who desired to overthrow the people and take away all their goods. So it looked pretty black for Lot. He was taken into slavery. All of his goods and cattle were taken away from him, and he was in a pretty sorry situation. However, there came one who escaped from this group and told Abram of the situation. And thus we see the character of the man Abram. Abram uh, armed some 300 young men from amongst his own people and amongst a few of his neighbors, formed a fast-moving task force, if you like, and rode off on horseback to rescue Lot. He overtook the conquering party, who by this time undoubtedly were uh, completely uh, oblivious to the fact that there would be anybody left who could do any harm to them, and he fell upon them and overthrew Lekakidor Laomer and uh, managed to deliver not only Lot, but also those who had escaped of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who, who had been taken captive. And uh, Abram, therefore, proved to be quite a hero in this situation. He over, overtook the captors and, and overthrew them, and in due course, they were returned to their own land. Now, the king of Sodom, assuming that he had simply fallen from one brigand into the hand of another brigand, he says, well, it's mighty good of you to rescue us, but he said, you take the, our goods, which we'd lost anyhow, and let us go back to our cities, and we'll consider it a very fine bargain. But he was not recting with the character of the man Abraham. Abraham said, no, everything you have, you take back. The only thing we'll ask is that the young men who have come with me need something to eat, and these men have taken much of your food stuff. Let me take from it enough to feed the young men, and you take back what's yours. 
Well, you would have thought that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah would have been perhaps at least impressed by the high type of character shown by this man Abram, who would do something not for mercenary gain, but merely because he was trying to help a neighbor. But it seems that this was not the case. And the men of Sodom and Gomorrah went right back to their old haunts, and they went right back to their old evil practices. And they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as we read this morning, the Lord determined that their evil was sufficiently obnoxious. They were contaminating the earth and the people in it with their evil practices. And nothing could solve the problem but that these people should be destroyed. And God determined to destroy them. He revealed the fact to Abram. There was a little dialogue between Abram and, and uh, the angel of the Lord who came to him, which tells us of the fact that Abram said, If there be a few righteous in the city, will you spare it? And uh, he whittles down the number, and one can almost read between the lines what Abram is thinking about. The Lord's messenger has told him, I am going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram thought, Oh, my kinsman Lot and his family, surely the Lord would not do this to them. And so as he whittles it down, he gets nearer to the size of Lot's family. And if there were only this many righteous people in the city, would you spare it? And the Lord said he would. But as it turned out, the size of Lot's family was not the size of the number of righteous people in Sodom. For when the time came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and you will note in the 19th chapter, which was read in our hearing, <clears throat> in the 12th verse we're told, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou any here besides son-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city? Bring them out of the place. And in the 14th verse we read, And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his son-in-law. They wouldn't listen. So, as it turned out, Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, not the married daughters who chose to stay with their husbands, nor the sons who chose to stay with their Canaanitish wives whom they had married, but just this little company of four people were the only ones that were worth saving out of this whole area of Sodom. And this was not enough for the Lord to forbear and not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So, the Lord said, we will take you out of Sodom and Gomorrah so that we may destroy it. And of course, as you recall, this is exactly what happened. And eventually, they were brought forth out of the city. The Lord agreed to spare the smallest of the cities of the plain. There were really five cities of the plain of which Sodom and Gomorrah appeared to be the two most prominent. And one of them was called Zoar, which simply means little. It was a little tiny city, one of the smallest of the group. And the Lord agreed to spare this one, which was somewhat distant from the other ones. And he told Lot that you can go there, and I'll spare this city. And then in the 24th verse of the 19th chapter we read, And he overthrew those cities, and all the plain, and all the inhabitants of the city, and that which grew upon the ground. How did he do this? Well, the 24th verse gives us a story. The Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now down through the years we've always had the picture that 
most everyone has. I don't know. Maybe you don't have. But I, I, I always did until I began to research this subject and found out how mistaken I was. But I always had the picture in my mind that great sheets of fire came down from heaven coupled with sulfur, and which is what brimstone is, and the sulfur burned and the city was burned up in a flash of divine fire from heaven. Now, we don't underestimate the fact that the Lord did do this. But the Lord sometimes works in ways which are much simpler than man would imagine him to be. And in this case, it would appear this is the case. Remember I told you to mark that situation which led to the overthrow of the kings of Sodom? Uh, they fell into slime pits. Now, what are slime pits? Well, again, from the word, you'd almost think it was some sort of a quicksand or something. Well, it's not. If you look into the original language of the scripture, you find that a slime pit, uh, the slime of which it is composed, is known to modern language as bitumen, which is a petroleum product. Uh, bitumen can be anything from the, the plain liquid petroleum itself oozed up from the ground all the way to asphalt, which is petroleum without its uh, dilutants. Asphalt, of course, being rather hard, tar-like. So the slime pits then were pits of bitumen. Uh, they were petroleum products oozed up from the ground, and you all know how greasy and slimy that can be. It's no wonder that these kings of Sodom fell into it when they uh, got mixed up with this oozing up petroleum. Now we come to the other interesting feature of the, of the uh, story, and when it says brimstone, and we look at the word for brimstone in the original, and it is not the same word as slime, but it is a synonym of it. And therefore, it too means bitumen. So what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah was that it apparently was situated over a subterranean cavity in which there were ample supplies of, of petroleum, of oil in other words. And some of this had bubbled up in the area and had made marshy sections of uh, petroleum products on the surface of the ground. And when the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it would appear that what happened was it only took the divine vengeance to ignite the petroleum products, and you have the makings of a first-class conflagration. In addition, there appears to have been an earthquake, and the destruction of the city uh, appears to have been a very... Uh, momentous catastrophe which occurred. Now the question is, is there any way to prove today that such a catastrophe took place? And the answer is yes. Archaeologists, and more particularly in this case geologists, have gone into the area around the Dead Sea and have turned up the fact that at one time in history there was actually a catastrophe which occurred in this area and which resulted in a, a land movement by earthquake and a subsidence of the land and that it appears to have been accompanied by uh, burning and fire. But the fire appears to have been of the crude oil which was uh, expelled from beneath the land when the land by means of an earthquake subsided. And they can even tell us about how long ago this took, took place from the character of the land around Sodom and Gomorrah. The time in which the uh, geologists tell us that this took place was about 1900 B.C. 
And this coincides with other dates which we have, which lead us to believe that uh, Abraham lived about 1900 B.C., and therefore this must have taken place in the days of Abraham. Now, further evidence that it was a petroleum fire and not sulfur burning, I think, are very clear in the 27th verse of the 19th chapter where we're told, And Abram got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and behold, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abram and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Note again, there were two characteristics to the destruction. There was, there was fire and brimstone, or as we have now discovered, fire and bitumen, or petroleum, and the fact that Abraham, living quite a few miles from the area, could see this smoke of a great furnace coming from over the hillside would indicate again, if you recall, petroleum products burn with a black smoke. And it would seem quite evident. Now, sulfur doesn't burn with a black smoke. It has more of a whitish colored smoke to it. But petroleum products uh, have this black smoke, and this is what Abraham saw coming over the hillside. It also tells us that not only were they burned, but the Lord overthrew the cities. Now, overthrew comes from a word which implies a land shaking. The land was shaken so that the cities were overthrown. And geologists confirm this very fact. And this is why I brought the charts today, so that you could see what geologists believe is the thing that took place at the time when this was occurring. On this chart over here, we have a, a general idea of what the city looked like before Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown, what the area looked like. You'll notice from the lower map, which is uh, looking down on it, the Jordan River flows in from the right, and the Dead Sea is located as you see it here, and below the Dead Sea was a plain area which was flat and upon which Sodom and Gomorrah were built. This, of course, uh, is the extreme southern portion of the area. Now, looking at a side view of it, which is just above it, you see the depth of the Dead Sea, which is a very great and deep sea, 400 meters or approximately uh, 1,200 feet in depth. And the city is built upon this plain. Now come over and take a look at this chart, and you'll see the difference of what has occurred and which geologists are able to confirm. The land upon which Sodom and Gomorrah was built subsided. It sank, and down it went until the waters covered it from the Dead Sea to a depth of 20 meters, which would be roughly about 60 feet in depth. This uh, area of subsidence, I might point out, was a little bit irregular, and it has left an area which did not subside into the sea, which in Arabic is called the tongue sort of a tongue that projects out into the sea. You can see this little piece of land projects out and it is there to this day. And this tongue is the place where the city of Zoar was built. So that the Lord caused the land all around, or no, not Zoar, Zoar was nearby, all the land around this area to subside into the sea, but Zoar did not, and the tongue of land did not subside. Now is there any other evidence? which would indicate that Sodom and Gomorrah were once there. Is there any evidence to indicate that the land, as the scripture says, was well watered and good for flocks? Yes, there is. 
One of the amazing things is that if you go on a small boat over this shallow area of the Dead Sea, not the deep area, but over the shallow area of the Dead Sea, and you look down into the waters, it is said that to this day you can see trees and shrubs still on the bottom of the Dead Sea. Why should they be there? Well, because the Dead Sea is so salty that it preserves it just as if it were pickled. And all of those trees which were in existence in the times of Lot, and which were, whose existence was terminated when Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown and the land was subsided below the sea, have been perfectly preserved, and there they are on the bottom today. And you can see the evidence that at one time it contained forest land and undoubtedly grassland, and was indeed, just as the scripture says, a well-watered plain. But of Sodom and Gomorrah, nothing. The archaeologists can't help us here. And that in itself is a corroboration of the scripture. Because the scripture says that Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown. It wasn't merely depopulated. It didn't, wasn't that its people were merely killed. The entire city was overthrown. And thus we don't expect the archaeologists to find it. They might find some evidence on the, on the bottom of the Dead Sea, but that's where they'd have to look to get it. So this is the story then of Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is how it transpired, and it was not just as we often have pictured it, as if it was a flash of fire from heaven that destroyed it, but it was a combination of a subsidence of the land, which undoubtedly caused the gushing up of additional petroleum products. These were ignited by perhaps a stroke of lightning from heaven, and the result was a tremendous conflagration of fire which destroyed the people and their whole area was eliminated under a mass of water that came in as the land subsided. And that brings us to another interesting feature and that is that the Jordan Valley in which all of this took place at the lower end is one of the most interesting pieces of land on the face of the earth. Uh, it is unlike any other land perhaps anywhere else in the world. We, uh, our, our civilization didn't appreciate this until about a hundred years ago or a little more when an, uh, an American explorer by the name of W.F. Lynch back in 1848, same year in which Dr. Thomas published Help Us Israel, led an American expedition over there to reconnoiter this land. Up until then, of course, this had been barren country held in check by the Ottoman Empire. So he got a permit from the Ottoman uh, Empire to do a little exploring over there. And he took uh, a, a caravan comprised of himself and a number of men and native helpers, and they, they carted a boat, an American-made boat, overland until they put it into the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus used to be. And from this area, they went first to the north and explored uh, the Jordan River all the way to its source in Mount Hermon. Then they came back down, and they went on all the rest of the way and went down the Jordan River until they came to the Dead Sea and explored this. And for the first time in history, the, at that time, the Dead Sea area and the Jordan Valley had been explored as a result of more or less modern scientific uh, instruments. And one of the amazing things which was discovered, which nobody anticipated, because the ancients weren't aware of these things, when W.F. Lynch set up his theodolite on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he endeavored to find out 
what the elevation of the place was, because this is a natural thing for a geologist to want to do. How high is the surface of the Dead Sea with respect, shall we say, to the Mediterranean? And he was amazed to find that it was not at sea level at all, but about 600 feet below sea level. And he couldn't believe his eyes, so he thought he must have made a mistake in his reading, so he took his instruments and checked it again. Sure enough, the same answer each time. And he said, well, no, none of us ever knew this before, but the Sea of Galilee, that sea where Jesus used to uh, go with his disciples, is actually way below sea level. And he thought, if this is the case, then what about the, the Valley of the Dead Sea? This must be even lower because the Jordan River descends even further as it goes on down. And so he went on with his journey, and he discovered when he got into the Valley of the Dead Sea that sure enough, the Dead Sea is over 1,100 feet below sea level. It is, in fact, the lowest habitable portion of the Earth's surface. And it forms a portion of what has since become known as the Great Rift, a slash in the surface of the globe, which starts high up the Jordan Valley and continues right on down through the Dead Sea, is blocked up a little at the base, but continues on further through the Gulf of Akabar, which is part of the Great Slash, and even continues on into Africa, as if some great force from outer space slashed the surface of the Earth at some remote time in antiquity. And thus, this area is unique. No other place on the face of the Earth like it. What happened when Sodom and Gomorrah were dis was destroyed? Undoubtedly, this irregular land condition was such that there had been a, an earth fault there, and the earth gave way and subsided when the Lord uh, produced the necessary circumstance and caused the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah first to be destroyed by fire and then to be destroyed under the surface of the Dead Sea. Now, the Israelis, realizing that this city of Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of bitumen, petroleum products in the area, got the idea that, well, why shouldn't there still be petroleum products in the area? And so they did a little prospecting, and they have now sunk uh, an oil well in the area of Zoar, and it is today a producing well of oil. The first oil well in the nation of Israel is the one which they sunk in Zoar. All right, so much now for the circumstances surrounding this situation. Uh, I think now we would like to talk a little bit about something else. We'd like to pose a question here, an ethical question. And that question is, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What were his reasons for doing so? We hear a lot about human rights today, and various people protest that, whoa, my, my human rights are being violated. I want this rectified right now. Would it be possible for an inhabitant of Sodom and Gomorrah, if he could stand before us today, to exclaim, the Lord violated our human rights in causing our city to be destroyed? Or was there a reason why God destroyed the city, one which was ethical and proper? Well, we do know, for example, in the 20th verse of the 18th chapter of Genesis, that the Lord's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was not good. He said, 
because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it. And of course, he sent his angels there and found that they were indeed just as evil or more evil than, they, than the Lord had considered they were. It's interesting to note that he sent his angels to Sodom because of the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now this doesn't come through to us too clearly in our modern translations. The ancient Hebrew word meant the clamor, the noisy clamor of a rabble, uh, of a rabble type of mob. We see so much of this today in our country. A mob gets together and their clamor goes up and they do things involving violence. We've seen the president involved with such a mob in recent times. This is the thing that attracted the Lord's attention to Sodom. And then when he sent his angels, he found that their sin was indeed grievous. For when the angels visited Lot, the men of Sodom came, as we read, and said, Bring out these fellows that have come to see you, for we would know them. And again, the language does not come through clearly. It sounds as if it were simply neighbors saying, well, we'd like to meet your company. But this is not what they said at all. For the men of Sodom were sinners of the most flagrant type. And the sin which they were most noted for is the one which has come down in history to the point that even modern legal language uses the term sodomy to describe a certain type of crime which is committed before the law. In modern legal parlance, sodomy is simply another name for homosexuality. And this was the problem which the sodomites were guilty of. And when they wanted to know these men, they wanted to engage in illicit sexual practices with them. And when Lot refused to let them uh, desecrate his guests in this manner, they were prepared to turn on him and to violate him in the same sort of a manner. Well, you can see what the Lord thinks of this kind of sinfulness. He terminated. Why did he terminate it then? And he hasn't terminated when the same kind of sins occur in our country and in the other countries of the world today. Well, the reason is the world was much younger then. The human race was much younger then than it is today. And if the, if the evil of Sodom had spread and become general all over the world then, can you imagine how much worse it would be even today than it is now? So the Lord in the inceptive stages did restrain sin in an effort to have it from, to keep it from becoming too rampant and thus became the necessity of destroying the men of Sodom. They had invented sins which were a little too soon for their generation, and the Lord had to destroy them. But we might ask, upon what basis did the Lord destroy them? How did the Lord determine whether they were sinful or not? And here we would like to turn with you, or ask you to turn with us for a moment, to the 33rd Psalm. The only way in which we can understand how the Lord viewed people like the inhabitants of Sodom and how the Lord views people who sin today is to recognize that the Lord is the creator of all and that the Lord's principles, those princi 
principles upon which he uh, judges things are the basis for the determination of whether people sin. What the Lord has built, what the Lord has created man for was good and proper in his sight. When man departs from what the Lord has created human beings for, then this is evil in the Lord's sight, and as such it becomes sin. We're all too apt to think of sin merely as the transgression of some law, and sin is indeed the transgression of law. But it is well to remember that sin is anything which is contrary to the purpose and plan of the Lord. And the Lord looks upon men in this manner. Note in the 33rd Psalm, in the 13th verse, The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. This does not just mean Israel, nor does it just mean brothers and sisters in Christ today. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. And going over to the 34th Psalm, the 14th verse, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. And to further corroborate it in the words of the psalmist, turn back to the 11th psalm. This is a very familiar psalm, and sometimes we don't consider that the parts which are less familiar to us are also extremely important in recognizing God's attitude toward human creatures. In the fourth verse of the psalm we read, The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. Thus we see that when the Lord ruleth in the kingdoms of men, as Nebuchadnezzar found out in the course of uh, his work with, with Babylon, when the Lord ruleth in the kingdoms of men, he judges men on the basis of whether they do wickedly or whether they do righteousness. And the question arises then, how does the Lord judge those who do wickedly? And we go over to the New Testament, perhaps, for one of the best answers to this one. Turn with me for a moment to the second chapter of Romans, where Paul tells us of this very thing. He says, for as 12th verse of the second chapter of Romans, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. I have jumped the 13th, 14th, and 15th verses, which are a parenthetical insert. And the sense of the thing is that those who sin outside the laws which God has given to man still sin, but they will perish without the law. But those who sin after having become acquainted with God's law and having taken his covenant upon them will be judged 
by the law in the day when Jesus, when God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Now, applying this to the principles of Sodom, just briefly, we find that the men of Sodom were not uh, perhaps even acquainted with the laws of God. The Mosaic law hadn't even been given. But they sinned, nevertheless. And not only did they perish without the law, but they were hastened on their road to perishing in that God destroyed them by a violent upheaval of nature. Now, we would like to, to verify that by turning over to the fifth chapter of Romans, and we will see that this is precisely the way in which it was intended to be. In the fifth chapter of Romans, we read, 12 verse, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then this little insert is extremely important here. For until the law, he's here speaking of the Mosaic law which was given to Israel in the days of Moses. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, he says, calling attention to our, what seems to be a discrepancy, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that is to come. Now, the point we would like to emphasize here is that there was a period of time in which the Mosaic law did not exist, in which whatever laws that God gave to mankind had perhaps been forgotten. We can look back before the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, however, and, and we can find clear evidence of the fact that there were righteous people in the earth at one time. Noah and his sons, for example, were righteous. They were saved out of the antediluvian generation because they and they alone were pleasing to God, whereas the antediluvians had done evil and were uh, evil in God's sight. And when Noah and his sons came forth from the ark after the flood, there were only righteous people in the ark, and there were only righteous people on earth, until the descendants of Noah began to be evil. And you know, it doesn't take very long to lose contact with that which is pleasing to the Lord. It only takes sometimes a generation or two until people completely forget that there is such a thing as the things that are pleasing to the Lord. And so it wasn't long after the flood until there were entire groups of people who had no idea of what was pleasing to the Lord. The only thing that they knew was their own senses. If it was pleasing to their, to their senses, they did it. If it was displeasing to their senses, they didn't do it. And certainly this is the case of the men of Sodom. They had no idea of the principles of right and wrong, it would seem. But nevertheless, this does not alter the fact that even though they were in ignorance of any law of God, nevertheless they sinned and were displeasing in God's sight. And we read then in, in this situation that death reigned over those who were from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. And we might say, what is the apostle driving at here? What is he telling us? Does he tell us that the people from Adam to Moses didn't sin because they didn't have a law? No. 
he says they didn't sin after the similitude of Adam's sin. And so we say, what kind of a sin did Adam sin? And the answer is that the Lord gave Adam a law. He says, in the day that thou eatest of this tree, thou shalt surely die. Adam, knowing this law, with full knowledge of what he was doing, ate of the fruit of the tree. Having eaten of the fruit of the tree, his sin was a willful disobedience of God's law. And here we would point out a little chart which will show that. The sin which Adam committed was a willful sin. Now everyone doesn't sin a willful sin because there's another kind of sin. The other kind of sin is a sin of ignorance. You don't even know you've done it because you don't have any idea what the Lord requires of you. And from Adam to Moses, amongst the people who had cast the Lord behind them and didn't even know what his will were, they sinned. But they didn't sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression. They sinned in ignorance. Which made them, if anything, even more obnoxious to God because how can you correct a man who doesn't even know he's doing wrong? This presents a, gra a grave problem. And the only answer the Lord had in this case was they must be destroyed. Fire and brimstone was used to destroy them. So this is the ethical reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They had departed from that which he intended for men to do. And their forebears before them had laid the groundwork for this departure when they failed to send through to their, to their descendants the commandments of the Lord, which undoubtedly Noah must have known something about. What did Noah do right that the rest of the people before the flood didn't do? Noah was a man who found favor in God's sight. Abram was a man who found favor in God's sight too. But the men of Sodom didn't find favor in God's sight. They were doing something they shouldn't have done. And these men then, who did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression, nevertheless did sin, were displeasing to the Lord, the Lord destroyed them, and since they had sinned without the law, they perished, and their judgment is now over and done. So much for the ethical side of it. I think, however, it makes us realize a little bit about our own generation and the realization that around us we see people doing things. They haven't the faintest idea of what the Lord requires of them in many cases. And we know that this generation, too, will meet the same kind of a fate that Sodom and Gomorrah did. For we turn to the 17th chapter of Luke, and we read in the 28th verse, Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Let us remember this, brothers and sisters, that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah on a small scale in the little tiny area of the Dead Sea Valley, 1900 years before Christ, is going to be reenacted on a worldwide scale in the days in which we live. Even thus shall it be in the days when the Son of Man shall be revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop, uh, and he stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him not likewise return back. And one of the shortest verses in the scripture, 
remember Lot's wife. Did you ever think about what happened to Lot's wife? Go back to the 19th chapter of Genesis for just a moment. Readings on the 19th uh, chapter of Genesis. In the 26th verse, we read, But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. I don't know what your picture of this is, but I can remember as a boy. I always got the idea that here were four people hurrying out of Sodom and Lot's wife turned around like that and zip, an instant she was turned into, into a pillar of salt. I suppose children get these kind of ideas, and I certainly did, but it didn't, it didn't happen this way. It says that she looked back from behind him. She fell behind. She didn't go out as fast as Lot did. She didn't hurry as the Lord had told her. And finally, she must have almost decided to go back, and she looked around. And the result was the conflagration caught up with her, and presumably the great outpouring of bitumen and things of this kind may have overwhelmed her. And as a result, uh, she was turned into a pillar of solid matter, having been over overthrown and overcome by the solid matter deposited on her by this great conflagration which was occurring point out that the uh, people who were destroyed uh, when Pompeii there was over uh, when Pompeii erupted in ancient Rome these people were also covered over with mineral matter and their bodies were completely decomposed and yet the, the evidence that they were there and buried in this mineral matter is still present with us today because they were completely engulfed with the mineral matter that came down from the burning volcano which was erupting so it must have been in the case of Lot's wife. She fell back. Why did Lot's wife fall back? Was it because she was curious about what was happening to Sodom? No. I don't think that's the answer at all. I feel very sorry for Lot's wife. She had sons and daughters still in Sodom and Gomorrah. Two of her daughters were with her, but her sons and daughters and her sons-in-law we're all still back in Sodom and Gomorrah. And here is the thing which makes us stop and consider that brethren today speak about love, and certainly we should have love one for another. And as if love solves everything. If you love, you can do no wrong. But this is not so. Because it was the love which Lot's wife had for her erring children which resulted in her destruction. You see, we have to choose what we love. If we don't choose what we love, and if we love that which is long, wrong, we can be worse off than if we had not loved at all. Lot's wife had been warned that she must make a choice. She must love the Lord her God enough to follow the Lord's injunction to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah and don't fall behind and look back and she could have been saved. Or, as she did, she could look back and love those children she was leaving behind to the point that she lost her chance to escape. And this is what Jesus is telling us today. 
when he says, remember Lot's wife. I think in our dealings with the world around us, we should remember that. Not to love the world and the things of the world, for the, the world passeth away and the things thereof, but the word of the Lord, which can make us wise unto salvation, abideth forever. And so we would point out, as we take leave of this subject of Lot, that the great valley of the Dead Sea will one day be changed. And all evidence of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah will be eliminated. We read in the last part of the book of Ezekiel that when the temple is set up there, that the rivers of water which will come forth from the Mount of Olives, described in the 14th chapter of Zechariah, the, the rivers of water which will come out of the, the uh, Mount of Olives will go forth into the former sea, the Mediterranean, and into the hinder sea, the Dead Sea. The great rift will be opened and presumably will lead right on down into the Gulf of Akabar. And the waters which come forth from the Mount of Olives will form a river and will augment the Jordan as it comes down from the Sea of Galilee. And the valley of the Dead Sea will be healed, they tell us in the 47th chapter of Ezekiel. Might be well to close by reading those very beautiful words and see the tremendous change in the topography of the land which is to take place in that last day. In the 47th chapter of Ezekiel, in the 7th verse, in the 6th verse we read, Son of man, hast thou seen this? And he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river which flowed out from under the temple built upon the cloven Mount of Olives. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which, being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. The waters of the Dead Sea support no life today, they are evil, but they will be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. There shall be a very great multitude of fishes, because these waters shall come thither. For they shall be healed, and everything that liveth, and everything shall live whither the rivers come. And it shall come to pass that the fishes shall stand upon Engedi, even under Enegliam. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kind, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. The Dead Sea today, and since the days of Lot's time, has been a sea in which no living thing can exist. When this river of water flows out from under the temple in Jerusalem after the kingdom is set up, it will heal the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea will be a place of fish, not a desert as it is today. And in Gedi, which is merely a, a promontory upon the mountains that overlook the Dead Sea, will become a place where men will go to fish and will bring forth and dry their nets after they've been fishing in what was once the Dead Sea but which will in that future age be made a place of beauty and a place which is living. This is the picture of the future when the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah will, be have, will have been completely healed and the last evidences of the sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah will have been wiped out. And it is to this end, brothers and sisters, that we want to keep ourselves and to take the lesson of Lot's wife very clearly to hand. Let us not set our affection on things below, but rather let us set our affection on things which are above. For when we leave this world, we can take nothing with us. 
It is an interesting fact that so far as the wealth of this world is concerned, when we enter the kingdom of God, we will be penniless. We will be paupers, unless during our lifetime we have not occupied ourselves solely with laying up treasures on earth, but instead have occupied our time with laying up treasures in heaven. And this is a thing that should occupy us and keep us from doing as Lot's wife did, setting our affections 